Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I would like to wish you all a happy succession week. Hooray! I uh, just wondered if we could uh, start with a little tiny chat about why Sky, previously owned by, I'm not going to bother checking my notes because it was Rupert Murdoch, <laughs> is currently trolling the BBC by playing the succession theme tune on loop outside Auntie's house. What? Is it? Yeah, there's just some people with violins, like a, a, a mini orchestra. It's not a quartet, it's a bit more than that. Outside the BBC's buildings, continually playing the Succession theme tune. I just wondered why. I mean, the Succession theme tune is an absolute banger. It's Absolutely good. no arguments for me on this one. Still why, though? <laughs> is it just to be like, yeah. aha, we've got a Succession and you don't? Because they have got Maybe. quite a lot of other things, to be fair to them. I mean, they don't have Succession, but they have got other things and i would argue to be honest that the bbc's money is better spent than getting succession yeah in all honesty agreed it seems like a baffling power play to me i mean sometimes that is the point of succession maybe that's what it's about yeah have you watched it yet i haven't watched it yet hannah did you stay up until 2am to watch it Uh, no no i mean i would have but i was exceptionally tired and i've got a very poorly arm um which means i'm not sleeping properly but anyway i actually want to sit down on my sofa and like watch it and then be able to talk to someone instantly about (laughs) it or you know whatsapp you or my brother or paul kirkley or someone and know that they have watched it it is as ever monday as we record and it is getting watched by all three of us tonight though right yeah yeah awesome awesome see you on the whatsapp see you later well i'll be outside your house playing the theme tune constantly (laughs) (laughs) well i mean you know this but for a couple of years now i've actually had the succession theme tune as my ringtone have you i don't know this well, phones don't always ring very much. Uh, I'm wondering when it comes, like when it plays on the telly, whether I'm going to have some Pavlovian response to it. Yeah, my ringtone is Led Zeppelin's Cashmere. And whenever that gets played on the radio or comes on a TV thing or a film, I am confused. It is confusing. Mine's just yeah. ring, ring. So you can imagine how confused I am all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Basic bitch, here she is. <laughs> so many ring, rings in the world. <laughs> Anywho, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I think... I don't know, I haven't checked Twitter, but I think it's fly a plane over Hannah's house day. Congratulations. Thank God. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I feel quite special. There's all sorts. Um, There's some planes that are actually, you know, planes, which I assume are coming out of Cambridge Airport. There's some planes that are like military planes, which I presume are coming out of the American bases up the road. And then there's a variety of what can I describe as comical looking planes, like historical planes, which I assume are coming out of Duxford. There's American football going on in London at the moment. And so there has been a lot of American fighter jets doing sort of overhead stuff around here as well. I did not know about that. They've probably come from my neck of the woods, which would explain that. Is it at Spurs, Mickey? Is it at the Spurs Stadium? Oh, I'm not taking questions on this at this moment in time. (laughs) I don't know. I'm Jen Offord, and yesterday I went to a cat's 20th birthday party. Happy birthday, Millie. Happy birthday, Millie. Come on. Was it lovely with the cupcakes and cat food everywhere? We, (laughs) no, she mostly hid upstairs from my daughter, who's allowed to have supervised strokes. I mean, allowed by who? Because it doesn't sound like Millie's allowing that. By me. Uh, <laughs> Millie, Millie's an old lady, so she's pretty tolerant, actually. Far more tolerant than I would have um, would have imagined she'd be, given her attitude and her history and everything about her. So she mostly sat upstairs, but then I put Lyra down for a snooze and brought Millie down. And she sat on my lap for a good 40 minutes while we ate cake 
and um, then my mum cooked her up a bit of chicken as a treat. That sounds like a lovely birthday party. Yeah. Lovely. Later on, I chat to Gabby Hutchinson Crouch about her new book, Wish You Weren't Here, and the ghoulishness of 2016. I talked to a friend of the show and psychotherapist Jane Watson about fear, where it comes from, how to beat it, and when to trust it. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm talking about the upcoming W Series finale and a leaked report investigating bullying and harassment in horse racing. And we are sticking with Spooky in Rated or Dated as we watch 1991's The Addams Family. But first, Fifty Shades of Shit, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. (laughs) Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. There's three of us when there's supposed to be two. Like Christmas, round at number (laughs) ten. Oh, God. So, Friday's news that long-serving Conservative backbencher Sir David Amys had been stabbed to death at constituency surgery in Leon C was both completely shocking and, coming just five years after the murder of another MP, Joe Cox, not at all shocking. Given that, as I record, we know little about the perpetrator or his motives, I'm going to limit what I say about it to the facts, and that is that it is terribly sad for his friends, family, staff and colleagues It's also sad for the country and for our democracy. Agreed. Mm. Note that I didn't feel the need to preface that with anything about how Sir David comes from a party I don't support or has views I disagree with, something that a huge amount of social media didn't manage over the weekend. And I can see only two reasons for this. The first, that people can't separate their politics from what is an objectively horrific incident. The second, that they are scared other people will attack them for showing compassion for a Tory. Both of these things say a lot about the standard of political conversation in this country right now and both worry me. And while the father of the house, Sir Peter Bottomley, put up a pretty spirited argument on Newsnight for why MPs shouldn't change the way they work and shouldn't live in fear, I'd say that in recent years, many, especially female MPs, have had cause to fear for their lives. Mm -hmm. In 2019, a man was charged after threats to kill was sent to West Lanks Labour MP Rosie Cooper, along with Birmingham Yardley MP Jess Phillips, between May 2019 and November 2019. He was also charged in relation to malicious communications, which were reportedly sent to the then Prime Minister Theresa May in September 2018. Cooper was also the subject of an actual murder plot by the now-jailed neo-Nazi activist Jack Renshaw. Also in 2019, then-Lib Dem leader Jo Swinson said threats had been made towards her children and a man was jailed after sending then-MP Anna Soubry a letter saying he would like to murder her like Joe Cox. Also in 2019... Then Labour MP Ruth Smith said she was being forced to carry a panic button and turn her home into a fortress because of death threats. Back in 2016, South Tyneside magistrates heard that then Labour MP for Liverpool Wavertree, Luciana Berger, was sent a number of emails, including one which said she would get it like Joe Cox. John Nimmo, 28, also sent another which said, Watch your back, Jewish scum. Regards, your friend the Nazi. Berger went on to receive police protection at the 2018 Labour Party conference. Also in 2016, a man appeared in court for sending threats to kill then Labour MP Angela Eagle, including an email that said, next time you see me, I'll be with a real gun or knife cutting your life to an end. 
When Paula Sheriff, the then Labour MP, spoke in Parliament in 2019 about being the subject of death threats, she was dismissed by Boris Johnson as talking humbug. Diane Abbott, herself the subject of the most, and that is in volume, I don't know whether it is in proportion, the most violent death threats received by any sitting MP, later told PMQs that Sheriff had received four death threats since speaking out about death threats. Also in 2019, a man was jailed after sending threatening emails to MPs including Labour's Yvette Cooper and Jenny Chapman, Conservative Nicky Morgan and Sarah Wollaston and Heidi Allen, then of the Independent Group. One sent to Allen read, Your days are fucking numbered, bitch. And on and on. Friend of the show Stella Creasy has been subject to death threats that I can find evidence of dating back to 2013. Caroline Flint former Labour MP, reported being sent an email that said, this time next year, you'll be swinging from a rope. I mean, I could go on. In fact, I will, because there's two MPs I've yet to mention. Indeed, they often get missed out from the conversation, because the threats they have received are down to their beliefs in the conversational death spiral that is the gender identity debate. SNP MP Joanna Cherry is threatened so much and on such a regular basis that she often receives police protection. Earlier this year, a man who had previously been convicted of a knife offence admitted in court sending abusive messages to Cherry. Labour MP Rosie Duffield is subject to so much violent abuse that she was advised to stay away from the recent Labour Party conference as she couldn't be protected. Both are talked about in such a casually violent way online, I genuinely fear for their lives and it makes me question what sort of society we are becoming. And if you don't like hearing that, I don't know what else to say to you. Perhaps I'm not the person you thought I was. I can live with that. If you are condoning a tyranny of abuse to any MP, I'd venture it's more important to reflect on whether you are the person you thought you were. I'm going to take my head out of my hands uh, just to say, yeah, absolutely well said. Couldn't agree with you more. And it's just it's just fucking horrible. I think we all have to think about... We all have to think about the part we play in public debate, basically, and and the way we talk about people and the things we say and what we may or may not be contributing to. Because, like, you know, it is all part of the same... It's all part of the same picture, isn't it? Oh, bloody hell. Right, well, um, I'll, I'll crack on with more... Fifty Shades of Shit, I warned you at the top, (laughs) listeners. Really upbeat news for you all. We've all no doubt read the headlines and heard the views of various commentators on the impact of the last 18 months on the mental health of the nation. And the rise in isolation, depression and anxiety over the course of the COVID pandemic has been pretty well documented, but it seems that the impact may be far greater than initially anticipated. NHS data reported by The Guardian earlier this week shows that suspected first cases of psychosis referred to mental health services between April 2019 and 2021 had risen by 75, 75%. That's a lot. It's an awful lot. And that trajectory had continued during the summer months of this year with a 53% rise in July 2021 compared to the same month in 2019. According to the NHS website, the two main symptoms of psychosis are hallucinations and delusions. And it can be caused by a mental health condition such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. But it can also be triggered by things like substance abuse, medication, but also stress and trauma. 
A study by researchers at the University of Queensland found that globally there had been an estimated 76 million extra cases of anxiety and 53 million of major depressive disorder that would not have happened had it not been for the COVID pandemic. And the report also found that women and young people had been worst affected, as had the United Kingdom compared to other countries. And that certainly adds to the picture painted by a Commons inquiry last week, which described the early handling of the COVID pandemic by the UK government as one of the UK's worst ever public health failures. We're a leading nation, Jane. What's your point? (laughs) (laughs) What's she moaning about? You know what? Like, I'd actually forgotten about that report until this morning. Now, you lefties are so negative. (laughs) Like, like so much. Sorry, that should be we lefties. So much awful shit has happened that I'd actually forgotten about that report until I wrote this this morning. That we had been described as one of the, it, it had been described as one of the UK's worst ever public health failures. So of the new figures, Brian Dow, Deputy Chief Executive of Rethink Mental Illness, said these soaring numbers of suspected first episodes of psychosis are cause for alarm. We are now well beyond the first profound shocks of the crisis and it is deeply concerning that the number of referrals remains so high. It's the onion that keeps on giving just layers and layers of awfulness. Yeah, and for how many years will will we be peeling? <laughs> said <I'm... laughs> I think it's a big old onion. Jesus. I've actually got a bit of good news before the good news section. What? I know. Get Stop me? your showing off. Oh, well, in fairness, we do have to wade through some really horrible shit before we get to it. So brace yourself for trench foot of the heart. In July 2021, 74-year-old Carvel Bennett was sentenced to 11 years in jail, having been convicted of raping a 13-year-old girl in the 1970s. The woman conceived through that rape can only be referred to as Daisy in order to protect the identification of her birth mother. And Daisy has campaigned for nine years to bring Bennett to justice. Because Bennett raping a 13-year-old was a matter of public record. When Daisy read her social services files aged 18, she read that her birth mother was 13 years old when she was born and her birth father was Carvel Bennett, then 28. The matter was investigated by police but never brought to court, read the files. Initially, Daisy's birth mother did not want to pursue a prosecution against the man who raped her when she was a child, and police told Daisy that even though she described herself as a walking crime scene, what with her DNA evidence confirming Bennett as her father, Daisy herself was not, in legal terms, the crime's victim, and it wouldn't be possible to proceed with a case against Bennett without her birth mother providing evidence. Ultimately, though, Daisy's birth mother decided to testify, and the rape conviction was secured. And Daisy is now campaigning for a change in the law so that children conceived through rape can be recognised as secondary victims of the crime alongside the primary victim, their mothers. I promised you some good news, didn't I? Well, as well as that hard-won conviction, Daisy's campaigning has led to her winning a prestigious award. And on Sunday at Philia's annual conference, Daisy was announced as the winner of the Emma Humphreys Memorial Prize, which recognises women who make outstanding contributions towards ending male violence. What's more, Daisy is expanding her campaign goals and asking the authorities to consider victimless prosecutions in cases where the victim may be too traumatised to testify or may have died or disappeared, but where there is DNA evidence that could be used to convict the rapist. She's also calling for better treatment and support from the justice system for children conceived through rape. And you can follow Daisy on Twitter at Rape Conception. And just in case you're thinking maybe Daisy's case is wildly unusual, 
Government data released in 2020 shows that 900 women were forced to disclose that they had children conceived through rape in order to access benefits beyond the two-child benefit cap. Wow, good for her. Would you like some some more good news? Yes, please. Is it actual good news? (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's unequivocally good news, I would say. So let's head over to Ireland, where it's just been announced that the Irish government will introduce a basic income for artists. A 25 million euro initiative is expected to award creatives a weekly income of around 325 euros, a recommendation made last year by the Irish government's Arts and Culture Recovery Task Force and would start no later than next April. And the scheme is designed to help out the creative industry as one which was particularly hard hit during the COVID pandemic. Minister for the Arts Catherine Martin said the initiative sends a message to artists living and working in Ireland that their work is valued, appreciated and necessary. Oh, hang on, hang on. I've just got news of a message to Britain's artist from Rishi Sunak. Here it is. I think we can all (laughs) applaud that. Do you know what? Nothing makes me happier than the thought of people in Ireland staring out their windows and writing poetry. And, and some, the government paying for it. I'm not entirely sure that's how the scheme works, but in my <laughs> head, that's what's happening. I like the idea of um, a load of pub singers just being given just being given money to like go and sing in pubs, like the commitments. Fuck it, why not? Well, more news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but you know they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where time waits for no man and apparently does sweet Fanny Adams for women. So you'll remember last week Hannah had us watching excellent documentary Harlan County USA made in 1976 by Barbara Koppel and a predominantly female team of filmmakers. Just to remind you, it won an Oscar and rightly so. Fast forward 45 years and another woman took a gong for her role in a documentary with Pippa Ehrlich, a South African-based first-time director, sharing BAFTA's Best Documentary Prize for My Octopus Teacher with her co-director, James Reed. But you'll probably be not at all surprised to find that Ehrlich is an exception rather than the norm. Because while documentary teams in Britain today are full of talented, ambitious and more than capable women, things are far from equal. Either of you want to shoot me a surprise face? Nope. (laughs) Awesome. We Are Doc Women, a peer support group for women directors working in factual television in the UK, founded in 2017, has this week published the findings from its survey on career progression within the UK factual television industry. And it is all fascinating reading. And as it is my turn on the mail out this week, I'll chuck in the link so you can have a nose. The big takeaway is, however, that there is a huge equality gap in top jobs and pay between women TV documentary makers and male colleagues. And women who are making headway have to wait much longer than men for their big break. We Are Dot Women surveyed 700 industry professionals and analysed 21,433 television credits to expose the gap between the rate of progression of women and men working on documentaries. And it's shit, isn't it? It's shit. Mm-hmm. I said last week we could probably say that about most news stories we cover. So here I am proving my point. <laughs> shit, isn't it? One woman producer interviewed for the report talks about how difficult it can be to secure creative directing work. And she said, I feel because I'm female, I have not been as trusted to do technical or shooting roles that are the gateway roles to becoming a director in TV. I'm relied on to do producing, which requires female soft skills communication, diplomacy and organisation. 
And look, more than 50% of the population are women. I don't know how many times we have to fucking say this, but it's true. It's just a fact. And so surely 50% of the stories being told on telly should be written and directed by women. That is maths that even I can grasp. Yeah. Clever girl. (laughs) Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by our friend, psychotherapist, Jane Watson. Hello, Jane. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. Thank you. Good. I feel like it's slightly weird saying that, saying psychotherapist, (laughs) and then I feel like I should just automatically just go, well, actually, I have had a number of issues. (laughs) (laughs) We thought we'd have a chat about fear. Okay. Partly because Halloween is coming up, you know, Mm. and lots of people remain very jumpy about a number of things in that area. But also because, you know, we live in dangerous times, especially with things like COVID, obviously, but also with things like Sarah Everard's murder. Like, mm-hmm. There is a climate, I think, more of fear at the moment. So we wanted to talk to you about what fear was and yeah. how you beat it. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. OK, there. thanks. I guess that there's an evolutionary purpose to it, which is actually, for the most part, quite good. Yeah, you've answered that very well. Yeah, it's like a universal response, isn't it, to harm that's sort of real or imagined. It's there, really, to protect us from hurting ourselves or putting ourselves in danger on a sort of very basic level. But as you've pointed out, it can go wrong sometimes. So it it stops us from doing things that might endanger ourselves or should do. I mean, there are a couple of instinctive fears that we're all born with which is a fear of falling and a fear of loud noises i was going to say if you notice when you drop a baby which sounds dreadful i haven't (laughs) dropped a baby but if you hold a baby and sort of lower it quite quickly its arms will go out and legs will go out like a starfish yeah and that's a natural response to feeling like one is falling equally i was thinking about this at um have you seen any of those videos of cats that kind of jump a mile in the air when, <laughs> when there's a cucumber thrown in the room? Have you seen that? Yes. And that's an instinctive, important fear for a cat to have. Of, not cucumbers, by the way, but um, snakes. So there are a couple of specific ones, but the other fears are generally develop over time, usually sometimes from a young age or even... Some are more culturally nuanced. Talk about spiders, we'll probably talk about that a yeah. bit more, I'm sure. In Australia, it's good to be, I would say it's good to have a healthy fear of spiders, right? Whereas here, you could say it's not really that necessary. I would agree, because I was very scared of spiders until yes. I went to Australia. And it added a kind of vital sense of proportion to me. Right. That made me realise right. that spiders here, I don't really like it when they are very near me for example particularly if one like runs over Mm -hmm. you which they have a Mm -hmm. habit of Mm. largely because my sofa's quite near a window (laughs) that's almost always open there's a point if I was 15 or 16 I'd have left the room and not gone back in until someone had bought me evidence that that spider was gone whereas now I just think what's the worst thing that's going to happen nothing right yeah so you know that's that's sort of fear in a nutshell it's it's there to protect us but also you know, we can develop them over time based on stimulus that we see or experience. What's the difference between a fear and a phobia? Well, a fear is 
like we said, just, uh, you know, you see something, oh, I better keep away. But a phobia is like an excessive fear, really. It's an anxiety sort of related behaviour to an object or a situation. You get a fear of things or anticipate a fear of things that aren't objectively going to hurt you. A normal fear would be you sort of react at the time, but phobias, could be, you'd probably be watching out for it or expecting it. So given that we learn quite a lot of our fears, so spiders, multi-generational Dunleavy yeah. fear spiders, and so it's pretty clear where that comes from. Mm. But I used to work with someone who was scared of hedgehogs. I've also interviewed someone once who was scared of buttons. Um, yeah. Where the hell do they come from? Well, I mean, you might not believe me but I think the general consensus is it's learned somehow right? Uh, or it might be quite hard to imagine but I think I was thinking about like buttons but I'll tell you about cotton wool first I think there was an example <laughs> <laughs> just to give you an example so it's a reasonably common fear of cotton wool and the consensus is that it is learned and it's learned from probably from being at very young being a baby and the proximity to cotton wool i don't know the details and the ins and outs of what might have happened but i suppose if a a small child i know got hold of some cotton wool or or swallowed it put it in their mouth it felt awful you wouldn't necessarily remember it because it'd be very young memory that there is an experiment of uh, someone who became phobic of anything sort of small and fluffy and it was um, done in uh, 1920. It would never be done now. It's unethical. It's dreadful. It's dreadful, actually. It's appalling. And it was called the Little Albert Experiment. And some psychologists got a, a young boy. I think he was sort of 9 to 16 months. And they would show him like a little mouse, a little fluffy mouse or something. And initially he was really fine with it and loved it. But what they started to add was a really loud bang like a hammer on metal from behind his head so i know it's awful and they would do that over and over again until the child developed an extreme fear like a pavlovian that's exactly what it is you know in that respect you know if you think about the brain and and he became scared of things like cotton wool right because anything associated with that shape that's kind of when phobias start to blossom really the brain is constantly changing and building you know that's how we learn new things if our brains didn't start to shape we have like i'd say you know we have bridges you know there are neural networks that build in our brain when you learn to i don't know play the guitar those connections get stronger more wires sort of lap Mm. over the knowledge becomes cemented you become naturally able to do it without thinking very much same with fear right same with being scared of something if you get initially scared by something and it keeps happening again then it's going to strengthen that that network then you're going to be anticipating fear way before it even comes to you even if it's not that sort of real Mm, that is interesting that kind of sounds a little bit like it's almost without hope can you treat a phobia jane i know you went and paid someone to put spiders on you uh, yeah i'm it jane was less kinky than it sounded. Yeah, scared of spiders too. i was really scared of spiders like i screamed the house down i must have sounded terrible to anyone walking by i just couldn't cope with any sort of spider 
So, gosh, was it eight or nine years ago? I just decided it was enough, really. And I signed up to something called the Friendly Spider Project, which is run in London Zoo. And it's a day of uh, people who are very scared of spiders coming together to get over their <laughs> phobia. And I've got to say, it was a very tense start to the day. <laughs> and, you know, you had to rate um, how scared you were from one to ten. I kind of went for a seven. There were some people who were saying, I'm about a three, and I was like, well, three sounds great. I'd have three. Why are you here? Some people were a lot worse than me. And I mean, they kind of said at the start, look, we're not going to promise we're going to cure you. We've got a good hit rate. Not everyone that day got what they needed. But I mean, some people's phobias are very significant. And I suppose also it's about you being willing to do some things you'd rather not do Mm. the first part of the session was like in a big hall they were doing a bit of i'd say some sort of cbt like talking to you about spiders and how they don't harm you and what the uses are and i can really remember looking at the ceiling this like dot on the ceiling (laughs) and i was convinced it was a spider like even though as we were starting this i was already fixating on where a spider might be and then we did a relaxation sort of safe space technique, which which seemed fine, like a semi sort of hypnosis. And then we went to the invertebrate room. Have you been there? I'm not a London Zoo. I have been to one uh, that's near me. Right. And it's so, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not my favourite place. And so then they've got loads of volunteers so obviously you've got spiders in cases like really dangerous ones but obviously you're really safe because they're part of the display but what was really more terrifying was that they had loads of house spiders in boxes and sort of jars and the first step was to go near a jar and the second one was to try and touch hold it maybe hold the jar and then they had people on the door so I think I went to the loo at one point Someone chased after me, going, where are you going? I said, I'm going to the loo. And he said, are you sure? Because they were obviously trying to catch people who were making a run for it at this point. So the fear was real. And I I think I was one of the last people to stay there. You know, like some people did it. I was so jealous, I remember. Some people were doing it straight away, holding a massive, you know, the really big high spiders you get in October. Yep and letting it run over their hands I eventually did it and it was kind of amazing and then I remember the night before I knew the I knew the sort of finale was to hold a tarantula and I I remember writing a letter and putting it in my back pocket saying you don't have to hold the tarantula the night before i was so worried that i actually hold a tarantula which sort of says how scared i was yeah. like i was scared i was going to go through with it but i did hold it actually it was much easier than the house spider they just sit there like they just sit there the house spiders are running around you know yeah i mean that's yeah. one of the things that is that i used to find scary about them was that yeah how fast how they fast they moved yeah 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 how quick they were well, they've taught me rather to to catch and release. Look, I won't hold a house spider again willingly, I don't think. But I, I can cope. 
what's happened is my fear response has gone to something somewhat normal mm. in, in the sense that I'll see one, I might have a little bit of a jump and then I'll sort of regulate. Whereas before I, comp- I couldn't regulate. I was just in a total state of dysregulation. In fact, a spider came down from my windscreen today, funnily enough. Not a big one, yeah. but my car is full of spiders because of lockdown. Like, it's just like little ones just made home safe. And I just thought, gosh, I don't know what would have happened a few years ago if that had happened. Crashed and died. Right? <laughs> and I just called it a dick and carried on, you know. It really changed my ability to cope with them. And what that is, is a sort of a desensitisation. They worked up. You know, they were showing us photos. They were talking quite kindly of spiders in the morning. And then we got to visually see some acclimatising you to the fear. And it's like an exposure therapy. And that's that's a fairly... It's quite successful in, in many phobias. I mean, there are other treatments. I'd say that's the one you'd use mostly. But there's something I do called EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing which was used primarily for ptsd but it's being used much more for things like anxiety and is this the thing we talked about with the with the movement fingers yeah right yeah so what i would do if i was physically in the room with you is i'd be waving my fingers in front of your face left to right or online we can tap our shoulders left to right and it seems to sort of kickstart a, a process of rewiring. You know, we were talking about wiring. Yeah. That we associate certain fears and situations with certain things. So if we can start to process that and rewire it, then the association becomes less strong and can be severed in some cases. That's really interesting. And, and look, I'd like to be able to explain it fully, but... People don't quite know exactly how it works, but it does seem to work incredibly well. We think it maybe mimics a bit of REM processing our sleep, you know, where you put things in the right place, mm. or the wrong place. What it does really well is is take this vividness out of certain images or memories. And that's what really helps with taking the fear out of something that's so. We pick a film, rated or dated, we watch a mm. film. I'm n- never allowed to pick a horror film because mm. Jen and Mickey are both have genuine issues around horror films. So, right, so. And you, but you like them, don't you? I don't I don't super like them, but I think there are some really good ones that would be worth discussing. Yeah. So, but some um, people like fear, don't yeah. they? So am I ever going to win them round? You'd have to sort of encourage them to try and watch some, but otherwise, no, they're not going to shift from that position particularly i mean you could maybe sort of suggest that they've got good reviews or whatever you could put (laughs) the pressure on but unless someone is willing when i did this spider one people were like going there's no way i'd do that i'm you know because they're so scared yeah so like the phobia itself prevents treatment sometimes i'm sure a lot of people with significant phobias really understand that that they can't even see why would they even do that why would they try and accept the thing they fear the most yeah it kind of doesn't make sense in a way but it's worth it for sure you did hit a really Mm. interesting point there was that some people really like fear yeah i mean to what degree is that healthy or not healthy 
it's kind of healthy. There's thrill seekers, aren't they? It's like going on a roller coaster. When you are scared, it it releases sort of chemicals, doesn't it? Like adrenaline, endorphins, and dopamine, and then like the pleasure receptors. And there's a, a natural sort of high from that. Mm. When you do something kind of scary, there's a bit of a, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm all for living dangerously, Jane. <laughs> and then you've survived it, and it's over. There's a like a, I did it, you know. Yeah. And that's addictive. Mm. That's why you've got people who love base jumping right yeah you know they do it and do it and do it more because it's it's such a it's the feeling they're going after i'm going to add another question on the end here jane for you if there was a box and it had a scary thing in it what would what would that thing be (laughs) Hmm. i don't know there's quite a few on a throne there i suppose i'm quite scared about the future climate wise Mm. I think probably that would have to be the big one, wouldn't it? But it does worry me what what we're doing and that people in charge, unfortunately, don't seem to see it as a thing to be fighting for. No. You know, and, and again, I, I just don't think we're taking it seriously enough. So that does concern me. Thank you so much for your time, Jane. You always teach me something. That's okay. I want to know what yours, your, what's in your box. Oh, a tax return. Honest to God, there's Are nothing. You really? There's nothing that scares me. <laughs> um, like a paperwork, but b paperwork that comes with a potential criminal record if you don't fill it in properly. Possibly a prison <laughs> sentence if you don't fill it in properly. Paperwork makes me really agitated, and something about that paperwork that comes mm. with a with a cost. Um, mm. Well, a literal cost really, really terrifies me. Yeah, I mean, clowns are pretty scary, I think. A bit like spiders. <laughs> I'm less scared of them if I was expecting them to be there than if they just pop up. To do an exposure therapy with clowns. Oh, God. Jen's terrified of clowns. Maybe we should we should get her on board. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jen, she's going to hate this. <laughs> I'm joined by comedy writer and author Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch, who's here today to talk to us about her new book, Wish You Weren't Here. Hello, Gabby. Hello there, how are you? I'm all right, thank you. And of course, I do not wish that you weren't here. (laughs) I hope everyone that speaks to you makes an awful pun about that, as I just have. I've done it to a comedy writer, what an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm the one who named the book that, so I'm just asking for it, basically, aren't I? <laughs> so, Gabby, do you want to tell us, first of all, a little bit about the book, just to kick us off? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's about a, a a family business, which happens to be ghost hunting. The family shows up, uh, as they always do, in a Ford Focus <laughs> to a haunted seaside resort uh, that turns out to be much more haunted and much more problematic than the initial sort of go in get the ghost in the in the local church go out again go to old witch they keep trying to go to old witch <laughs> they've got another booking in old witch that they never ever managed to get to <laughs> so it ends up being much much more difficult than than they initially thought so this is the first in this series of books and i'll come mm-hmm. back to that again later but you've written another trilogy of books the darkwood yes. trilogy which is fantasy Family-friendly fantasy comedy, I describe it as. Some people have called it middle grade or young adult. 
I just wrote it for me, basically. I wrote it for me and for my kids. So I sort of, I love Terry Pratchett. So I wanted that kind of, that storytelling with those books that straddles the two that, that adults can enjoy, but that um, that is also suitable for the kids as well so what drew you to this i don't know i guess let's say sort of supernatural theme in your books when i was writing darkwood i found i wasn't reading fantasies at all i was reading ghost stories (laughs) i got really really into ghost stories and i i started to, to think about how supernatural fiction and fantasy are kind of sides of the same coin they're all about sort of mixing the weird with the mundane uh so in in the fantasy book it was mundane real world things happening in a fantasy world in this book it's just flipped it's just it's the real world but weird and fantastical things are happening within it so it's 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 almost the same it's just i've changed the world this is a world that has tesco's and costas now instead of ye olde taverns <laughs> you know they've got four focuses <laughs> yeah it kind of reminds me a little bit of buffy the vampire slayer but with a ford focus yeah yeah i'm a huge fan of buffy i'm a huge fan of, of i zombie which i always describe as as buffy with chest hair um, <laughs> and um, there's there's touches of i was certainly inspired a lot by Shit's creek by the the adult family with the adult children all stuck in a car just that that mental image of mum and dad and the two adult kids who still get called kids having to sit in the back one of the kids has a has a long-term partner as well they're all just these three adults squished in the back and being called kids and being asked if they want some crisps Um, all in the same car there's something that really appealed to me to that as well there's a lot about being the children Mm. in a in a family when you are I'm over 40 now but they're pushing 40 and still being sort of seen as as the kids you know the way however old you are your family dynamic sort of remains the same you know like my dad still asks if we want fizzy pop at at Christmas and things like that and uh, me and my brother are both well my brother's 40 and I'm 39 so yeah my mum still shouts at me to be careful when I'm crossing the road like my brother I'm 41 (laughs) cross the road so apparently you believe that women write better ghost stories than men (laughs) i'm not an expert in this genre so educate me a bit here and our listeners if you will could you tell me why you think that is the case and also who your favorite ghost stories are written by so i got when i was really into writing my fantasy novel but but reading ghost stories for some reason i really 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 got into the the female written ghost stories uh, people like shirley jackson is is my girl i love her so much the way that she it's again it's that that wonderful combination of otherworldly with domestic and i feel that i mean certainly with the uh, with 20th century writers and and mod- modern writers now as well yeah susan hill's still kicking about and and there's this wonderful interplay of of the domestic. I mean, with you know, with a haunted house, that is a, a house that is malicious, and there are, are some wonderful ghost stories written by by women about women being trapped within a house. I think certainly the, the Haunting of Hill House is, is an amazing book because it's about the loss of female identity and female identity getting eaten 
by the domestic and there she she writes in all these wonderful details about people obsessing about plates and cutlery and cups and um and curtains i mean there's the um, the yellow wallpaper which is is much earlier than than Shirley Jackson which again is is a wonderful example of the genre which this woman is it's so claustrophobic and and the the real horror of the story is finding out what's what's actually going on in this ghost story is the claustrophobia of it and, and her obsession with the pattern of, of the wallpaper again it's it's women's identity just being consumed by a malicious house and i i just think that certainly in like the 20th century maybe w- women because they were sort of in a society where they were expected to just be within the domestic space this very small mm. space i just feel that they they capture that that oppression the, the just the oppressiveness of a house weighing down on you i just feel that they there's something about it that just speaks to me there's a weight to it that i really really love i guess there would be in you know real horror in some of those situations right the um oppression of of being stuck in a space that maybe you didn't want to be in or or didn't really know what it was going to be like as in you know motherhood or or domesticity yeah and and also so many women i mean with the yellow wallpaper there's this whole sort of idea of like his so-called hysteria that a bright woman is mad there were so many women who were told that they were mad they weren't they were just being women (laughs) and and again there's that the whole sort of feeling that this house is driving me insane almost the sort of the eating of of these human beings who are just stuck well i mean this isn't a ghost story but i guess it's in the supernatural genre frankenstein obviously is written by a woman and that's not really about you know monsters being put together by other people's body parts it's about allegedly it's about you know her fears around motherhood and and things like that Again, sort of going back to uh, what I was saying about fantasy and the supernatural, I think it's really interesting that the first sci-fi book is also the first horror book. And uh, other early ones like The Island of Dr. Moreau. I think Greg Jenner, the historian, sort of said at that point, sort of gothic horror sort of takes on both roles and they only get split a little bit later on. But yeah, going back to, I mean, that story she wrote after being trapped in a house with Byron. Yes. Yeah, I'm bloody hell, imagine the horror of that. I know, just the horror of it. That was during that, that horrible, horrible year when there'd been, like a, I think Krakatoa, there'd been like a, a massive volcanic explosion somewhere in the world and it's just like a permanent winter for like about 18 months and they were stuck during this perma-winter in this house in Switzerland with bloody Byron who was trying to sleep <laughs> with everyone. <laughs> and this other guy who wrote, who basically invented, that story was great. It invented so many horror genres, mm. as I believe, as a direct result of being trapped in a house with Byron. So <laughs> the first vampire story was also part of the same competition that Byron came up with because he was bored. <laughs> Hopefully this took his mind off trying to shag everybody in the house. But it was like, hey, guys, let's have a contest to write a scary story. And one guy wrote possibly the first vampire story, certainly one of the first vampire stories. And Mary came up with the the bare bones of Frankenstein. She says, after waking up and having, well, having sort of a, a sleep paralysis dream where a man was standing over her, 
her bed. Now, bearing in mind she was there as a second house with Byron. <laughs> <laughs> My pet theory is that that was Byron being a dick. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe the whole thing is a passive-aggressive swipe for Byron. <laughs> Well, that is interesting and actually leads me very neatly onto uh, my next question, which is about this book, Wish You Weren't Here, which alludes to something funny going on in 2016. So they've had this perma-winter where Mary Shelley and various people have have tried not to be shagged by Byron and and written these stories. (laughs) 2016 was a bit of a bogey year for a lot of us, wasn't it, to be fair? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And you've got a background in satire, so is that a bit of a clue? So that just came from so many people, including myself, just believed that 2016 was a cursed year because so many horrible things happened. I don't get that political in in Wish You Weren't Here about sort of specific politicians. I get political in that I sort of talk about general neglect, generally the, the people who are sort of higher up and the decision makers leaving normal people just... To, to it when the infrastructure's been destroyed but that's basically as, as political as I get in this but but that was just a little sort of nod to the just so many of us myself included believed that 2016 was a cursed year if you thought that some of the political things that happened in 2016 were good and not bad like I thought they were then at least we can all agree that David Bowie dying was awful (laughs) and in this it's like David Bowie dying is like our Halley's Comet in this storyline that was the portent of doom (laughs) everybody brings it back to oh yeah it's terrible when Bowie died (laughs) it was like Bowie, Prince and Carrie Fisher wasn't it all in one year Bowie was the first one that was like right at the start of the year that's when the Hellmouth opened and then yeah it was Bowie and then and then Alan Rickman died like days later and people were like oh no we're in for a horrible year and at the time we thought it was just January it's like when will January end this hell month where everyone's dying and then the year carried on no 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 I'm gonna be horrible and yeah Carrie Fisher and also oh George um, Michael George Michael, just people just randomly dropping dead. And I'm just, God, that's just so this year for us. And yet Carrie Fisher and, and Debbie Reynolds right at the end of it as well, just as this like, this fuck you, fuck it's you not from the, <laughs> yeah. just, we were so close yeah. to the end. We were so close. Come on, we'll start it again. 2017 must be better. We're almost, we're almost out of this year. And then 2016 went, guess what? I'm going to kill a really nice mother and daughter. So, <laughs> It was relentless, wasn't it? It was relentless and horrible. And yeah, that's it. So, so that's more, it, it's just me sort of trying to take some sucker out of the fact that 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 was a horrible year and me just going, what that was like basically, yeah, Harley's Comet, a a portent that the world was ending. Yeah, I sometimes think maybe we've been in limbo ever since, like maybe this is the rapture now. Yeah. You know, like... (laughs) It has been really weird. (laughs) It has been very weird, hasn't it? It's been very weird. I hope, I hope this isn't the rapture, but, um, you know, I guess we'll find out. Um, so you have written for tv you've written for the news quiz horrible histories to name but two and also you've got your darkwood trilogy what do you prefer to write do do you have any preferences or is it all just you know you can't compare oranges with 
another fruit. I think it's that. It's, it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? So I do, I really love writing for, for radio and, and TV and, and so on. With that, the Kansai, you, you have a lot less control often you're writing for, for somebody else. Writing sketches is great, but obviously you're writing for somebody else's brief. The pro is the pay's good. <laughs> With publishing, it's the other way around. You've got so much control. I'm able to tell a whole story, which I love to do, and I get to tell it in, at the speed that I want to take as well. Because these days, writing sketches, you've got to be in and out in 90 seconds. Oh, yeah. You know, we don't get we don't get to hang around like the Oxbridge lads used to in the 80s. <laughs> We've got to be in and out because people get bored. So, yeah, I can tell a story at the pace that I feel it needs to be to be told. I get so much control; it is my story to tell. The downside is it does not pay as well. <laughs> Uh, and it's very time consuming turns out writing books is it takes a long time it's got a lot of words in it uh, so yeah it is I can't really compare them I just like telling stories and making people laugh and I will do so in as many different media that I'm allowed to so Gabby this is the first in the Rooks series where might we find the Rooks in the second book in, in the second book, I know for a fact, because I've just finished writing the, the first and then second draft, that in the next book, uh, the rooks are going to a service station. Amazing. <laughs> I'm setting these books in what I call sort of crap British Gothic as a sort of modern spaces in Britain that feel kind of liminal. They kind of feel like no one quite belongs. So an off-season seaside resort. I live near the coast. My husband's family live in the Hastings. I grew up near sort of North Welsh coast. I mean, we live on an island. Everyone's like quite close to the seaside. Everyone knows what it's like to just go tromping around in the rain in in November, because all these books are set in November in that weird hinterland that isn't quite Christmas, but sort of also is. It's too Christmassy to be normal times, but it's also not Christmas yet. Um, So in this weird sort of hinterland, in the rain, in November, in the grey, sort of, tromping around along the, a, a wet pier <laughs> and none of the shops are open seagulls sort of glaring at you wet chips everyone's been there i'm sure and everyone's sort of felt that feeling of being i'm at this place mm. that isn't quite right at the moment because it's meant to be summer in the summer it'll be fine because there's people running around but but at the moment this is a weird space that isn't quite right and service stations just have that all the time. <laughs> they have that 24 seven. I'm fascinated by service stations, partially because they're, so many of them are like modernist builds from the sixties that have now sort of slightly gone to seed. And partially just because nobody belongs there. Everyone's passing through. And there's something that fascinates me about that, about how it's these transient spaces that we all go to because we all need a wee and some chips some pop but um yeah these these spaces where nobody quite belongs but everyone sort of passes through it wish you weren't here is published by farrago on the 7th of october i assume it is available in all good bookshops and indeed online and one evil bookshop (laughs) and one evil bookshop as well the hellmouth of bookshops if you will so, Gabby, where can we follow you to keep up with, with what you're doing? You can follow me on Twitter at, at Scribbler if you like a lot of political shouting and gifs of anime men, <laughs> which I post to cheer Check. myself up Check. when I'm feeling horrible. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you so much for joining me, Gabby. All the best with the book. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we douse the podium with champagne as we discuss all things women's sport. This is, of course, a reference to the W Series, which is coming to an end this weekend as the drivers take on the Circuit of Americas in Austin, Texas. And it's doubly exciting because it coincides with the United States Formula One Grand Prix, the first W Series event to be held outside of Europe. This partnership was supposed to happen in October last year, but, well, we know what happened in October last year. Nothing. Just Covid and relentless misery. Anyway, a fair few of the races from the 2021 series took place alongside Formula One Grand Prix, which I spoke about at the time these announcements were made, and for obvious reasons, I think is a really, really good thing. As I've said on this podcast before, I think the W Series in general is bloody great. It's completely revolutionised the world of women's motorsports in two years, which is a tremendous achievement. And what an absolute powerhouse Catherine Bondmuir, the series founder and CEO, is. Trebly exciting news. This year's series has gone to the wire with Jamie Chadwick, winner of the inaugural 2019 series, and Alice Powell, who finished in third place that year, tied on 109 points in second and first place, respectively. Emma Kimmelainen goes into the final weekend in third place with 75 points. Now, there are 50 points still to play for, so technically Kimmelainen could still win it, but something would have to go really quite badly wrong for both Powell and Chadwick for that to be the outcome. There is a lot at stake. For a start, a £500,000 prize for the winner compared to 250000 still not bad, for the runner-up. But also FIA super licence points. So as a little bit of background, to compete in Formula One, you need to have accumulated 40 of those points over the past three seasons and 15 of those are available to the winner of this year's series. 23-year-old Chadwick, who races full-time and is part of the Williams development setup, already has 10. 28-year-old Powell, like most other drivers, races part-time and, I believe, has none. So, I've spoken to all of the women mentioned thus far in today's Jenny Off The Block, so I'll try to dig out the links to those pods if you'd like to listen to what they've had to say about their experiences. But, obviously, we wish them all the best and look forward to watching it all unfold on Channel 4. So that's all sounding positive. Now, over to horse racing, where a leaked report into allegations of bullying and harassment made by Bryony Frost, one of the UK's top female jockeys, against fellow jockey Robbie Dunn, has dominated sports news. The British Horse Racing Authority's investigator into the allegations, Chris Watts, concluded in the leaked report that, on the balance of probabilities, that's a direct quote, Conduct by Dunn did constitute bullying and harassment and was submitted to the BHA in April. Dunn was then notified of formal charges against him, including conduct prejudicial to the integrity or good reputation of the sport. When approached by the Sunday Times for comment, both Dunn and Frost declined to do so. Since the report was leaked, the BHA have been criticised by Dunn's solicitor, who highlighted the serious reputational damage to the leaked report, which was published by the Sunday Times, would cause Dunn and said it would now be impossible for him to get a fair trial. 
For their part, the BHA said it was close to concluding the case, but this seems to me as good a time as any to make the point that there is a reason why there are laws in place around the reporting of criminal investigations. And though this is obviously far from a criminal investigation, I do wonder why we wouldn't apply the same principles here. Because I do understand the Sunday Times' point that where this is a sport that is celebrated for men and women achieving equality and look, it may not be the case after all, it may be a horrible environment for women. Could we not have waited until the investigation had concluded to thresh this out? Because we now jeopardise a fair outcome to the proceedings and therefore presumably what Frost was indeed trying to achieve. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film this week reminded us not to judge someone else's normal? Well, this week we watched 1991's The Addams Family, which was actually released in November 1991, but it's nearly Halloween, so we decided to cheat a little bit with this remake of the 1960s TV show. Directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who, according to Wikipedia, began his career working in porn, but went on to make 90s greats such as The Addams Family Values, Get Shorty, Wild Wild West, and if you remember that, Wicked Wicked Wild Wild. I think I've used that when I've been introduced on Outside the Box. I'm fairly sure that's one of my greetings. (laughs) And indeed, all three of the original Men in Black films. But he'd already worked as a cinematographer prior to his directorial turns on the likes of Big, When Harry Met Sally, and Misery. So, like, eclectic, right? Yeah. And also Raising Arizona. Sorry, I read that one. And Miller's Crossing. Amazing. I didn't oh, see I love Miller's Crossing. I didn't see that on the list. But anyway, let's not forget his acting credits, such as additional cat voices in 2016's <laughs> Nine Lives. The screenplay was written by Caroline Thompson, who was also responsible for the likes of Edward Scissorhands, The Corpse Bride and The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Larry Wilson, who had worked on Beetlejuice and Tales from the Crypt. Not that either of them had a niche or anything. <laughs> no. What I would have to say, if pushed is that Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice are both by far superior to this. But anyway, we'll get back to that. I'll talk you through the plot first. The Adams family are scary motherfuckers living in a big scary house, headed up by Gomez and Morticia, the parents of the incongruous Pugsley. He is incongruous. And Mm. equally bleak Wednesday, they're helped out by Grandma, a silent butler named Lurch, and a bodiless hand, Thing. Gomez misses his brother Fester, who's been missing for 25 years after a family argument. Spotting an opportunity to do him over, dodgy and indebted lawyer Tully capitalises on this when he realises the loan shark to whom he owes money, Abigail Craven, has a son, Gordon, who looks just like Fester and sends him to rob the family silver. But things go awry when, despite lacking the basic knowledge of some ancient torture devices, Gordon fits right (laughs) in with his faux family. Hilarity ensues, and hang on, I spot a twist. We will no doubt get on to what is wrong with this film in a minute, but it does have a banging cast. Angelica Houston and Raul Julia are charismatic as the oh-my-God-get-a-room Morticia and Gomez. (laughs) A young Christina Rishi is wonderfully deadpan as Wednesday. She's amazing. She puts the dad into deadpan, doesn't she? She really does. And Christopher Lloyd's 
plays Vesta. <laughs> You'll also no doubt have noticed first Wives Club alumnus Dan Hedea as Tully. Yeah. What a career. <laughs> He's still got his five o'clock shadow. He he has worked really consistently for a really long time, so well well done to him. Anyway, a fun fact for you, the ending of this film was actually decided by then ten year old Christina Rishi, who made a case for Fester actually being one of the family. That's a little bit not true. Apparently It was the all actors. actors. Yeah. Yes, but she put the case forward. So right. and Sonnenfeld decided that he agreed. The Adams Family made $30 million at the box office on top of its production costs. I guess you'd say that was a success. It was enough to spawn a sequel, The Adams Family Values, in 1993. Critics were less sure, however, it's hard not to agree that the cast is great, but that might have been pretty much all it had going for it. That and the special effects which were deemed impressive at the time, and we'll no uh. doubt talk about how well they've aged. Jonathan Rosenbaum, writing for the Chicago Reader, described the film as a collection of one-liners and not much more. A review by Janet Maslin for the New York Times picked up on the fact that The Addams Family wasn't ever conceived as a film and indeed doesn't really work as one. There's no plot, or at least certainly not enough to string the set pieces together. I'm not sure that I've actually ever seen much more than just clips of the original series. Maybe you guys have seen it. Yes, the original series, like the old black and white one. Yeah, big. Have you seen like actual episodes? Yeah, yeah, we used to watch it all the time at my grandma and granddad's, me and Mm. Isla. So, in terms of this actual film, I think I actually went all the way to Colchester to watch this one at the cinema, probably around release date. And I picked this film on the basis that I vaguely remembered enjoying it as a child and that the theme song for the film was performed by MC Hammer. (laughs) That's it. Obviously, you guys would have been teenagers when this was released. Did you watch it at the time? No, No, I didn't see it at the time. I saw the trailers and it felt like there were loads and loads of trailers that if you watched enough of them, you kind of had seen the film. I mean, on a second watch. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like it? I didn't hate it. It's a third no from me. No, I didn't hate it. About 20 minutes in, I had to give myself a little, come on now, you need to watch this. You might as well attempt to start enjoying it. So that would be a no, really. It's kind of, I found it inoffensive. It's I, It didn't make me feel like I had to give myself a pep talk or anything. I just sort of curled up on the sofa and, and watched it. And it's got some mildly amusing moments. I'm not going to rush to watch it again. But I certainly didn't hate it at all. I just thought it was boring. Yeah, not much goes on, eh? Mm. No. I don't have loads to say about this film, to be honest, and I'm surprised because I thought it would yield a bit more than this. Like, I thought I would find it charming or or funny or something, but I think what the critics said, I broadly agree with, really. Like, there are some funny lines in it, but they don't hang together terribly well for an hour and a half, you know. Would you like a fun Angelica Houston fact? I think I I know what it is, but go on. Okay, so when she was amping up to play Morticia, she hadn't watched the original series and she decided she didn't want to just recreate what was in the original series. So instead, to get into Morticia's character, she revisited Grey Gardens. Yeah. Oh, really? That's not what I thought you were going to say. That is interesting. I read that she had quite a miserable time. Because of the corset and everything. And And also because the, the... her, her eyes were like pulled back by this thing that took ages to put on and then it kept breaking and 
And I don't know whether having done that, having read a couple of things about that, it sort of affected how I felt a little bit about it. If that makes sense, because it seems to have been a bit of a shit show yeah. in the production. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. anyone had a nice time. <laughs> no, no. And whenever the things are like a bit of a shit show like that, the film ultimately reflects it. I don't know. They're a family that revels in misery. <laughs> Every now and again, yeah. you get an apocalypse now, don't you? And then it's like, <laughs> which I fucking hate. Yeah. Uh, but there we go. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So bored. So bored in apocalypse now. I mean, I didn't read about that stuff until after I'd watched it. So it didn't. It definitely didn't impact on my enjoyment of the film, knowing that it had been a shit show. But I just I watched it with my mum on Saturday night, and she fell asleep. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, I mean that's not necessarily atypical behaviour from uh, from Kath. But yeah, I I struggled a bit. Yeah, it was a bit sort of pep talk time. Angelica Houston, great, is great, always great. Christopher Lloyd. Love him. But it made me want to watch The Royal Tenenbaums or, you know, Back to the Future rather than... In, it just kind of reminded me that I've seen these people in way better stuff and I kind of wanted to... made me want to watch that. Yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? Because it is such a good cast. You're just like, how? How how did that go wrong? And I do... So maybe we should talk about Christina Ricci. Like, I think she's rich. You know, she's 10 years old in this. She's really good. She's excellent at it. Mm. She gets the best lines as well. She gets the best lines and she delivers them beautifully. That morose, when she goes, we're going to play a game. And he goes, oh, what's it called? And he goes, she goes, it's called, is there a God? <laughs> Which, that, that's, that was my one proper lol of the film. Is the lemonade made from real lemons? Are the brownies made from real Girl Scouts? Are the Girl Scout cookies made from real Girl yeah. Scouts? Although I just want to point out that culturally it would be different, but the line "Are the brownies made of brownies?" Yeah, that's would also true. Work. I like that Jen made it UK UK friendly there. Special effects, guys. I think they mostly stand up. What they did I think with the hand is still good. That thing is amazing. I think thing works really well. I kept thinking whoever played them must have RSI now. <laughs> Like, because all the running, the running must have been exhausting to just do that. Uh, another little fun fact for you: in the original series, the guy who played Lurch also played Thing. It was his hand, the disembodied hand. Thrifty, exactly. Fair enough, because he doesn't say anything, does he? So you know, <laughs> he still might as well get your money. Still doesn't worth. say anything. In fairness, do you know what it? Reminds me, the more we talk about it and the kind of, not not hate for it, but kind of for it. And I know actually the film I'm about to talk about, Hannah, there was there was genuine hate from you. But First Wives Club, which is another Scott Rudin film, right? And it's like, there's a kernel of something in there. Why are you bringing it up <laughs> again? I like to see you start scratching like a cat. There was a kernel of something in there. And I think there's more of a kernel with the Adams family. And it just feels a bit wasteful of some great actors, some great one-liners, you know, like, just write a fucking plot that works and you'll have a good film. Not a great film, but a good film. Because that's the point about the Uncle Fester bit, right? If it had actually been a great script, then the answer to Christina Ricci would have been, no, you're yes, 10. Exactly. <laughs> Which is a reasonable answer to 10-year-old's requests. Well, I think, exactly. yeah, I think it does say quite a lot that he was like, no, you're right, it would be better if we do what all of you actors think than the people who actually get paid to write this shit. Yeah, sure, we'll do what you want. Yeah. You're right, you're absolutely right. I do like that out of all of the actors, it was Christopher Lloyd who just went, oh, I don't care, and he played Gordon and Fester. Oh, I don't huh. give a shit, whichever. 
getting paid. What do you what do you think the kernel is, Mick? I think the series was really good and I think the cartoons were obviously very good and very popular because they ran for so long. So there was something mm. there that appealed to a lot of people. I don't think I don't think it was a bad idea to try to make it into a movie. They should have just tried fucking harder. <laughs> this is what I don't understand because I don't I don't think it's a fundamentally shit plot. It's just that there's not really anything to tie it all together. For me, the best the bit that I found most enjoyable is the the, the kind of German nurse thing, right? <laughs> but it's not amped up enough. It needed to have gone a bit further. It, it, it's it's this thing is happening within the realms of the the Adams family universe. Like there's a hand. You can be hammy as you like. So in many ways, I feel like it 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 didn't go far enough. It could have been like really, really silly. And I, I mean, I love that stuff where you like. I mean, I don't know, it started with the Flintstones probably, where you take a universe and you impose our universe on it but make it look like yeah. theirs. So, you know, you've got our stuff but at their angle. I don't know, it doesn't it doesn't seem enough somehow to me. No. It's, it's, not, it's not lavishly fun because it's only quite small, really. It's just them, essentially, as the cast. It mostly takes place in that house. They felt like the house could have been a bit, a bit wilder, a bit... And maybe that's the problem. Maybe a bit more a nightmare before Christmas. Yeah. to be honest, a bit more that expansive more world. De- more degrees. Yeah. yeah. Well, interestingly, it was offered to Tim Burton, who didn't mm. take it because he was making Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. Good for yeah. him. I mean, what a series of decisions that I was. I think maybe yeah. it isn't what it is, or what is it that is the problem? Maybe it's who's it for? Because yeah. if you were to make it really, really fun and silly and maybe lose a bit of the saucy innuendo between Gomez and Morticia. It could be a really fun family film, like a kid's film. Or if you were to make it much, much darker and actually put some scary shit in there, it could be a grown-up film that's like from a much-loved television series. But this kind of middle ground doesn't really work for anyone who's watching it. No, it's all a bit meh, isn't it? Which I know, Hannah, as you've said before, is not It's not a category, a is review, it? <laughs> but, um, Rated, but, yeah, dated, it's... or meh. I didn't hate it. No, I didn't hate it. I just thought... I, I mostly thought it was boring. That was my sort of overriding feeling. This is pretty dull. Yeah. Meh. Meh. I think... Meh. Meh. Should we talk about anything else? Should we talk about women? Representations of women? Morticia wears the trousers in the relationship she's the one in control which i think is interesting given how unhappy angelica houston clearly was during the filming of it mm-hmm. because she was massively constrained work that one out scott rudin <laughs> <laughs> is that enough on women for you jen <laughs> wednesday's probably the as you say she's got the best line so well done maybe for yeah oh, I don't know. creepy child yeah. well guys what are we saying rated or dated rated i didn't know whether that would work as a joke and it did dated she's doing a funsy uh dated yeah i don't think it was dated i just think it was crap yeah okay guys what's next mickey i think it must be your your selection i mean i know we usually try to keep our powder dry but yeah the rated dated or hated i've decided that we're gonna welcome that new category with open arms and love actually turns 18 oh fuck Oh. 
standard issue for all women.